podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome back to the Rock Chalk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Mitz. Tonight, as promised, we're joined by a special guest, uh, Scott Chasen from Fog.net. Um, just a quick note here, you didn't hear the normal music coming in. Had some technical difficulties with the episode as I was trying to go ahead and get it posted. So had to do take take care of this. I wanted to make sure you guys got the episode. Uh, so I just want to give you guys a quick intro, get you right into that. I won't be coming back after the episode, so don't worry about that when it just cuts off. Um, but some quick show notes at the be- very beginning. Just a reminder, we do have a new Twitter, uh, a new Twitter account for the podcast. It's at RockChalkPod. We also have a new email address, RockChalkPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we will be having another episode later this week. We'll have Jill Dorsey Hall helping us to preview volleyball. And then uh, we do have a special guest, Clayton Truder. He's from the SB Nation site for the Cincinnati Bearcats. He has some Big 12 predictions that we wanted to go ahead and, and catch up with him on. So um, be looking for that episode on Friday. Um, and I will get you guys right over to the interview with Scott. And I'm joined now by Scott Chasen of Fog.net. Scott, how are you doing tonight? I am doing fantastic. You know, I appreciate it when we were setting this up, as, as we just talked about. I asked you to call me at 8.03. I got the text at 8.02. The call at 8.03 it was perfect. Uh, punctual and that you know what that has me really excited to be back on this podcast <laughs> well you know what we do what we can so so first first question i wanted to ask is the last time we talked you were still a member of the staff over at the lawrence journal world um have since then moved over to fog.net took over fog.net um actually so my first question for you is what's the biggest difference between working as a part of the lj world staff um to what you're doing now running the fog.net site well, I, I'll say this. I've been really lucky to get to work with, first of all, a ton of awesome people and at a lot of different places. I mean, my first newspaper experience after the, the student newspaper at KU came at the, the Speak Capital Journal, working with, you know, Matt Galloway when Jesse Newell first jumped over to the Kansas City Star. I know you guys just had him on, and, and that kind of whole carousel happened, and, and I was able to work with Matt for a year and then had a chance to jump over to the LJ World, like you mentioned, and, and the team there is just great. I mean, uh, maybe even like, I mean, everyone knows Tom and Matt, but but guys like uh, like Ben and Bobby, Ben A. Smith, the football beat writer, and Bobby Nightingale, who's now in Cincinnati, like are, are just two of the funniest guys like I've ever been around. And, and Tom and Matt are, are obviously great and do a, a tremendous job of covering things too. So uh, yeah, I'd say the biggest difference, um, you know, it's I'm on a team not quite of one because we have a, a an amazing national support team. I've got you know Kevin Flaherty who, who provides a lot of KU content. Evan Daniels today, you know, breaking the Sam Cunliffe story. That That's, you know, he's not a KU dedicated guy, but he, he's, you know, as plugged in as anyone in the country. So uh, I think it's a little bit different. I try and give maybe not a national perspective, but I try and nationalize a, a lot of the KU things, if that's the right word, and also keep people filled in on recruiting because, you know, so often that's what, you know, these 24-7 uh, uh, sports sites are. They, they really, you know, hit recruiting hard. So that's tried to do a lot of that with KU basketball too. So it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a difference there, but you know, certainly whether it's Kevin or Matt or other Matt, it's, it's been awesome to get to work all around this kind of area. Yeah. I, I do think that that's kind of a space that it doesn't get covered nearly as much in, in your more mainstream publications. And I know that we over at Rock Chalk Talk have a really hard time really keeping up with it. Uh, we do actually <laughs> rely on your guys' coverage quite a bit. What is it like working in kind of, you know, 247 Sports kind of has that has that niche 
of being the recruiting guys. Um, I mean, has, has that really changed any way you're doing the coverage? Is there any kind of additional resources you guys have um, that, that makes it a little easier to keep up with the recruiting, or are you just more consciously aware of it? Yeah, you know, I'd say working with our national team, I try every week. I'll do it one for football and one for basketball. I'll break down. I'll talk to one of our experts, whether it's Evan Daniels. You know, Josh Gershon does a, a tremendous job on the West Coast. Jerry Meyer, Brian Snell, all those guys. Uh, you know, I'll actually talk with them, and, and we'll, we'll just talk about a kid. I'll have them. You know, they've seen him, obviously, a ton because, you know, I'll, I'll go out to see – you know, I've gone a, as far as St. Louis to, to see camps and see recruits and stuff. But, but obviously I'm not going to go much farther than that because I'm covering KU as well. I mean, these are guys who have flown all over the country, all over the world uh, to watch these guys. So ha- having that perspective has helped a ton. In terms of covering recruiting, uh, I-, I would say it's still a lot of, of kind of having their support, which is incredibly helpful, but also just kind of trying to navigate it to myself and, and figure out things. You know, I think a big thing is uh, it's so often in, in – media coverage, this isn't Lawrence specific, this is a pretty national thing, I think, is that it's maybe the same coach or the same whatever who can be a source on any number of topics, not talking about recruiting even, and, you know, specifically, because coaches, they, they can only say so much that they're even allowed to say. Uh, and, and so you, you get kind of bland information or it's just boring and, and you know, not, not especially interesting. And I think one of the things our team does so great and what I've tried to do is really talk to the kids about things they wouldn't be asked about normally. So, like, asking Jeremiah Robinson Earl about his fit with Matthew Hurt rather than just being like, how's recruiting going? Oh, there are a lot of schools interested in you? That's cool. That seems like <laughs> it would be that way. You know, so it's trying to find different ways to do it. And I think uh, 24-7 sports is really in favor of that. And there's It really is a tremendous staff there. So, you know, I just say for anyone who hasn't got the chance to check it out, if you give it a try, I think you learn pretty quickly that it's maybe a little bit different of a way of doing things. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Well, I know that we definitely enjoy reading the the articles you guys have over there. And, you know, have, having followed you and and all the other guys over at, at Lawrence Journal World and kind of all the guys moving around, um, it definitely added another highlight for us to make sure that we keep up with the fog.net site. So um been reading a lot of the stuff you've done recently, and we'll actually get to a little bit of that later because I, I do have some questions about some specific stories. But um, let's, let's jump right into the kind of the preview of Kansas football for this year, um, starting with summer camp. Um, obviously, you know, and, and this was something that we actually had talked with Jesse about, um, Kansas this year doesn't seem to have been as forthcoming in terms of media coverage at the camp. But um, what's the biggest story that's kind of come out of camp for you so far this year? Well, well, if you want to go, I, I mean, looking all the way back to the spring, I, I think you could start there. It's the same in the spring, the fall, and, and the summer. A lot of people are going to focus on that quarterback battle. But I, I really think it's the offensive line and, and how KU has tried to address, tried to fill out what was, a unit so weak in the spring that they couldn't play a spring football game. I mean, it, it can't be, a, you know, it, it can't be overstated that only having seven healthy linemen, like you could say, oh, well, those guys are going to get healthy by the fall, whatever. But, like, think about the K football roster now. I think there were, like, 19 or 20 offensive linemen on the roster. So to be down to seven at any point ever is, like, kind of an insane thing to only have seven healthy linemen. So uh, how they've looked to address that, whether it's transfers, uh, whether it's bringing guys in, it's uh, uh, maybe kind of like blue shirts or, or you know, you know, just flat out recruiting, adding freshmen like your Jalen Robinsons of the world. And I think it's been really interesting to follow what they've done with the offensive line. 
Uh, it's starting to look like we have a pretty good idea of who's going to be on it. But you're, you're right, KU has not been especially forthcoming or, or welcoming of, of coverage. The last time we were able to talk to them uh, collectively, the team was Thursday, and we won't get another chance until, I'm not sure when this will come out, but, but uh, the next Thursday. So there will be you know, a scrimmage and, and a few practices in between that, that we really won't get, to, uh, won't get to find out about until you know, the next few days. Yeah, yeah, it, it is going to be a few days between when we record this. So this this will be after the next time that you'll actually get to meet with them. So I'm, I'm sure by the time this actually drops, you know, we, we might actually know who the QB is going to be at that point. Um, any number of things could happen because I've, I've noticed, especially the last couple of years, that it seems like we're not getting any information and all of a sudden we get a ton of information and then it goes dark again for a while. So we'll see what kind of information is going to be coming out from from this, but you you kind of already brought up the offensive line, um, and that was going to be my answer to this next question. And uh, but what what do you think is the biggest area of concern with the team heading into the season? I would say that uh, I think the offensive line. You can make the argument that how they addressed it, bringing in a guy. And I mean, if I just wanted to give you my starting five man unit right now, I would say. Alex Fontana is like a 95% chance to hold down that center spot. Andrew, Andrew Tovey is like another like 95% chance to, to hold down one of the guard spots. And I think Chris Hughes will beat out uh, uh, the, uh, what is it, a Cal transfer who, I guess, Dwayne Wallace, who was maybe briefly committed to Ole Miss, but then decided to obviously go to Kansas for one reason or another. So I think Chris Hughes uh, – uh, obviously, Hakeem Adeniji is going to be one of your tackles. And then the other one, it's kind of open. Kevin Skeeter is, has gotten some buzz, the Ohio State transfer, but I kind of think it'll be Clyde McCauley at least uh, at this point. So, like, I, I think that five-man unit, I, I don't think that's that bad. And, and, in fact, when you consider the transfers, uh, who will at the very least be providing depth, I guess I only put one or two of them in my starting unit if I'm thinking about it, but or I guess only one of them. But, I, I mean, they're going to provide depth. They're going to provide, you know, it won't be a scenario like last year when Mesa Riberty went down and then KU got shut out in back-to-back games and the offense just looked like ridiculous. It's not going to be a case like that next year. I think you're seeing the staff trying to address that. I mean, they've had eight guys snapping as centers, which I think is fascinating. Uh, I think Joe Gilbertson is going to hold down the backup spot there, but just the idea that they would have eight different players, you know, trying out for essentially what's going to be Alex Montana's starting spot and then seven backups just to make sure – you know, that they don't run into a scenario like they did last year. I think that says a lot. So I, I think the line will be a lot better, but I still definitely think it's uh, it's your number one in terms of cause for concern. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know that there's a few other areas that we could probably talk about, like the QBs and things like that, but I, I do have to agree just because of the unknown of how all these transfers are going to be and all the turnover that we've had and all of that. I mean, I don't know how you can really say honestly that it's anything other than the, the offensive line that's the area of concern. Now, it could end up being great. Like, they could gel really quickly. They could really improve that play, and then we can find out what other holes do we have on offense that, you know, we, we may actually finally get the answer, you know, was quarterback play so bad last year because of the offensive line or was it because of the quarterbacks or, or some combination of the two? We may actually get to answer that this year um, if if these transfers can live up to the billing and, and, and these guys who are expecting to start can actually become a competent 
offensive line that gives good good run blocking and good pass blocking actually gives the offense a, a decent chance to get going. But um, going into the season, yeah, I don't think there's really any other answer other than the offensive line just because they are still such a big unknown. And, and it's really easy to make the case that they were kind of the root of the problem that we had last year with the offense and really for the last few years. So Yeah, yeah, I, I for sure agree with you on that. And, and I would add to that, I mean, you think about Peyton Bender, that two-game stretch that ultimately led to him getting replaced. Now, Baby said at Big 12 Media Day, that he was actually replaced due to injury. That wasn't tossed out at the time. It was seen as a performance benching. But I thought it was interesting that he, he went back and said that. I made note of that. But if you remember those games, Riberty went down, uh, Sims was injured, and Herbert was injured. So Peyton Bender lost his, you know, the lineman who kept everything together, his number one wide receiver and his number one running back. And, and yeah, it was a little dramatic what happened after that. You can't lose by 40 points in shutouts and back-to-back weeks and have a historic punting performance in one of the games that I, I think the only reason they got saved from setting the record was because one of the punts was, like, fumbled, like the snapper was a bad snap or something like that. So, obviously, you can't go that far in the other direction, but, but you're dead on with that. I mean, it, when things fell apart last year, I mean, it, it got really bad. Yeah, it definitely did. So, that actually was something that we had kind of talked about, where it seemed like everything that could have gone wrong last year just seemed to go wrong. Guys getting injured, um, you know, just really, really bad freak accident plays, just all kinds of craziness like that. So, um, so with that in mind, you know, this year um, has been completely different than last year going into the season. I know last year we recorded our, our season preview and we had a whole bunch of over-unders and talking, you know, lots of optimism about what these guys could do, talking about like, um, you know, Dale and Charlo, the wide receiver transfer from Alabama, maybe taking off and Steven Sims, you know, start setting receiving records. Just all of this talk about what could have happened. There was none of that optimism at all this year. Can you really blame fans for not really buying into that at this point? And do you think that there should be more optimism than there actually is surrounding the program right now? Yeah, I'll start by saying no, I don't think there should be. I think generally I think KU will actually be a lot better uh, than it was last year because of the number of things that went wrong last year. But at the same time, a a lot of that falls on the coaching staff, and I think that's why you're seeing them take the approach they've taken this year. I mean, this is, you know, David Beatty was at Big 12 Media Day saying, we always said year three was when it would pay dividends. What does dividends mean? Wins. So you can't say that and then obviously go and win one game. And, And when you consider, like you mentioned, the number of things that went wrong, whether it was injuries, I mean, the secondary was atrocious so much so that, you know, that combined with some maybe extra attention paid to, to Dorrance Armstrong basically kept him, uh, I think, without a sack for the first four weeks of the year. Like, it, it was crazy, the, the lack of production pretty much across the board. So, generally, I would say fans should be more optimistic if your barometer for team success is that last year's team. But if you're looking at like that Vegas over under uh, three wins and saying, should you be more optimistic or more pessimistic? I tell you this, if you were setting a win total and you put the number at four, that may not be totally ridiculous, but when if they won one game, people would make fun of you. If you set that win total at one and they won four games, no one would make fun of you because everyone would be like, well, who could have seen this coming after, you know, the last three years? So I think that's kind of the best way to describe maybe the mindset of KU fans. Yeah, I think, I think to be honest, we actually talked about it over on our site that um, we were surprised that the line was anything higher than one and a half. Like, I really thought that that was going to be the line coming out. Um, and the fact that it came back at three was just like, we don't, we we couldn't see where you could get three wins in that schedule. Now, 
Jesse Newell, um, you know, last week he he put out a prediction of like how each of the games were going to go, and he he had KU winning all three of the non-conference games. I, I guess I can kind of see that being a possibility, but if I mean if if I was making a prediction, the only game that I think they well, I even have a hard time saying that I think that they're going to win that first game because Nickel State is you know a a ranked FCS team. We saw what happened the last time a ranked FCS team came into Kansas. Uh, it didn't go well. So, you know, I mean, normally you would say, oh, well, you expect them to win that FCS game at least. Um, but this isn't the same team that they played last year and got that the only win of the season. Um, you know, I, I just I can't really see where three wins or more is going to come from. And so I'm not really that surprised that, you know, that there really is no optimism. And And a lot of it, too, just has to be, I think, attributed to the fact there was so much optimism coming off that win against Texas and all of the hype that there was surrounding the program. And David Beatty's naturally a very positive guy. He likes to hype people up. He likes, you know, to get the good feelings going. And I think he took it a little bit overboard, and it backfired on him. And I think this year is the natural result of that, that, you know, we got up so high last year before the season, and it fell apart so spectacularly that I, I just I just don't think anybody can realistically have any amount of optimism this year, especially since, you know, and, and we criticized him for the way he did his press conferences week after week, because the refrain that we kept getting was, well, these guys are putting everything in in practice, you know, and they're doing everything that they're supposed to be doing in practice, and we just don't see it out on the field. And obviously something wasn't working right. You know, it, it seemed like there was a lack of understanding of what's actually going wrong with the program. And if, if you have that on a coaching staff level, it's hard to really have any, any belief that that coaching staff is going to be able to get it turned around until they actually start to do it. Yeah, I, I agree completely, and I, I think back then, Beatty's second year, that Iowa State game. I mean, I think I might have talked about this the last time I was on here. I can't remember. I, I talk about it all the time, but especially on our site. Like, that team won two games. They beat Texas, and they beat Rhode Island. Should have won two more. Missed three field goals in the second half against TCU, including one at the, the final oh, yeah. form or whatever you call it. And then they let Iowa State by eight in the second half, let them going into the fourth quarter, and, and they let that game get away. And then Beatty, after that game in the press conference, I remember this because Matt at the time was either in Hawaii or New York for the start of the season. He was like, do you want to, you know, you mind hanging back and covering football? And I was like, oh, yeah, enjoy Hawaii. Dude. Um, but we were uh, – I, I just remember we were all watching, like, when Beatty came in there, and you mentioned the positive attitude, and that was the first time he didn't have it. And I think he knew, like, KU had that game, KU was the better team, and KU let it get away from them. So you come back the next year – what is Iowa State and what is Kansas, and it's it's night and day. Iowa State is a good team, you know, competing for bowl eligibility, the, the darlings of the Big 12, and you have this Kansas team that, you know, wins only one game. So uh, I, I think you're right. I think for a lot of people, uh, Beatty's kind of uh, attitude in terms of we're not looking back, we're only looking forward, I think that really rubs a lot of people the wrong way, and I understand why he has it that way. I think he's genuine. I think he's a very, very, very positive guy. Uh, at the same time, I don't think it would have hurt him to maybe open up more during that time and maybe share some of his frustration with how things were going. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I, I definitely agree he's the right kind of guy with the right kind of attitude to take over and build enthusiasm in a program that has been down for so long. But – if you don't start to see the results, then if he does not adjust that attitude, then it causes problems because people get tired of the positive attitude. 
Um, so, all right, but let's let's go ahead and move on from there. Um, the next the next thing that I kind of wanted to talk about, and and um, you know, one of the big the big pieces of news that come up recently um, was Jeff Long's first hiring as as an AD, hiring of Mike Vollmer uh, to come in and kind of be the administrative head essentially of of the football program to give that extra administrative support. Um, that kind of begs the question of, you know, was was there just not enough support from the administration for the football program to be successful, um, or is this more a case of you know, Jeff Long realizes how difficult this process has been to turn around, and he just wants that extra, you know, th- that extra help there. Um, I mean, I've heard speculation from some people, and I don't really know how much to really read into this, that, that maybe Shane Zinger believed in Beatty so much that he didn't do everything he possibly could have to try to help the program turn around. Um, I mean, do you think that that's likely, or, or is it more of a just let's throw everything we possibly can at this and see what we can come up come up with yeah yeah I think your last one is probably the right one I think I don't think it's necessarily like any kind of a reflection on Zanger I think when Jeff Long took over the KU program he referred to it as a challenge and I thought that wording specifically was very interesting about how ADs are competitive guys Jeff Long is a competitor he wants you know the challenge of turning things around when I talked so leading up in the 80s search Jeff Long you'll you'll remember was you know, one of the first names that emerged. Uh, this search process is, and quietly as Katie was able to keep some aspects of it, uh, it was incredibly public in terms of candidates and everyone knowing exactly who they were, you know, going after, whether it was Rick Hart or, or you know, whatnot. I mean, the, the candidates emerged almost immediately. I think the next day, Brett McMurphy was out there tweeting it, and then, you know, at a later point, I think it might have been Dan Wolken or someone. So th- this was a very public, public thing, which is interesting in contrast to how Jeff Long is. But, like, we talked to, at Fog.net, a radio host in Arkansas, just to get a better sense of who Jeff Long was, and did a write-up for the site. And it was a lot of, like, Jeff Long is, is different than your typical administrator. He runs things like a business. That, that's the way he's going to, like, run and, and manage his staff and manage maybe even boosters to a certain extent. But he he is a very competitive guy. He's like an athlete at heart. He's the type of guy who dives in a full suit into a mud puddle uh, because his soccer team wins, you know, back-to-back games against top five-ranked <laughs> opponents. So uh, he is that kind of, like, competitive, and, and I'm going to throw everything at this problem to fix the guy. And I think that's where uh, I think that's where this comes from. I think it's recognizing the situation Kate was in, and, and maybe even better than, than Zenger and saying, you know what, I could use a little more help, even though I'm more of an uh, established football guy, even though, you know, obviously some Arkansas folks would disagree with that, but I think generally his track record is a lot stronger than than maybe they would give him credit for. So uh, I think it comes from there. I think it wants, it comes from really trying to remove obstacles, as he has kind of said is his like main thing for coaches. I want to remove obstacles, and I, I think this is one of his ways of doing it. We'll see exactly you know what what this means for the program. We don't really know entirely right now, uh, but it'll, it'll be definitely something that's uh, interesting to follow and kind of track moving forward. Yeah, and at the very least, I mean, at least then, you know, if Beatty doesn't get the job done this this year and they decide to go ahead and let him go, they can honestly say they literally did everything they possibly could, even bringing in additional staff to kind of help, you know, coordinate and try to do everything possible to get the turnaround happen. So um, speaking of that, you know, I, I asked Jesse this, I've asked a, lot, a bunch of different people this, and I've been asked this as well on, on all the various sites that I uh, – 
podcasts that, I, that I've joined, is there a bare minimum number of wins that you think Beatty has to get in order to keep his job? Yeah, I, I do. because and, and I don't think it's because anyone went to him and was like, you need to win five games to do whatever. But I think it starts at that number five, and I'll tell you why. I think one, two, or three is not enough, quite frankly. And I think pretty much everyone could see that. And, you know, some have come out, a former player, I can't remember who, told the Athletic that Beatty should just get five years because the first two years weren't his fault. And I would say that's a, a fair assessment. But if year three is worse than year two and year four can't be better than year two, again, I'm not giving him credit for four wins in year two, but saying they had those four games. They had a game against Oklahoma State that he was incredibly competitive in, a game against Ohio that was basically just coached poorly in the first half, and when they made adjustments, Montel Cozart was leading a comeback basically until he got injured. Uh, and, and I think the K-State game might have been close that year. Like, they won two games, should have won two more, and had a handful beyond that that they were actually, like, fairly close in. This last year's team didn't have that. They came within 12 of Ohio because they scored a touchdown on the last play of the game. It's kind right. of fired, and they didn't even let them kick the extra point. That was an 18-point loss. Like the 18-point loss, I believe, 45-27 to uh, to Central Michigan. So if KU were to come back and win three games, I would tell you that that's still worse than they did in year two unless they were, you know, obviously down to the wire in nine other games. So uh, I kind of made a checklist or something of like, if I'm David Beatty, what do I need to do to keep my job every step of the way? And I think it starts with, I mean, you got to win at least two non-conference games, and I think you got to win at least two Big 12 games. I don't really think four by itself would be enough. I, I maybe if, you know, KU had some really close calls across the board, then you consider this team's going to be taking a step backward next year when they lose Stevenson and Joe Deneen and Daniel Wise. You know, Mike Lee told me he's sticking around no matter no matter what, but they're going to lose guys next year. So now you're back at square one. What if Peyton Bender's your starting quarterback? He's a senior. Now he's gone. So I think in that regard, it has to be more than four. And again, that's not because I believe he's been told win five games, you're fired. I just think when you consider the way the program has gone under his watch the last three years, four or, or excuse me, five seems like a very reasonable number. Maybe not reasonable in terms of what this team can do, but in terms of you've had four years, it's time to show something. Yeah, I mean, I think I could make an argument for four, but only if it's, you know, a um, steal one in Big 12 play on the road that you really shouldn't get. Um, and be competitive in every single one of your losses, except for maybe against like an Oklahoma or something like that. Like it's going to have to be not only four wins, but you know, really good performances in everywhere else, and just not able to pull it out. And, and get, at that point, then you can honestly say, you know, that they just didn't have the talent level to compete with some of these guys and be able to pull out victories, but they were at least competitive and showed that they were improving. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think in terms of like a a, a number of wins that would ensure that he keeps the job, I think it would be he has to make a bowl game or, or be eligible for a bowl game. So like if they win six, I think it'd be really hard at that point to honestly say we're going to go ahead and get rid of him, you know, um, because that would be market improvement. That means he would have to win at least three Big 12 games. Um, you know, they're going to have to probably win at least one on the road. Like, those are all things that we didn't really envision Beatty being able to do based off of his first three years. So if that happens and he makes a bowl mm. game, or at least is eligible to go to a bowl game, whether they actually get invited or not, like, that that would be huge. I don't see how you get rid of him because I think a good 
majority of the fan base would be saying, hey, look, you know, he's, he's just one of those guys that takes four or five years to finally get going. Um, you know, there's plenty mm-hmm. of examples of great coaches that have had problems getting going, especially in their first job, that once they finally find their feet, they take off. Um, Beatty getting to a bowl game this year would kind of be, I think, evidence of that, that he's finally starting to take off. Now, whether he can sustain it after that, I have absolutely no clue, oh, f- uh, mainly for a lot of the reasons you said. You know, I mean, um, a lot of these guys aren't going to be here next year that he's counting on being big, big guys. But I also have to think if KU wins a bowl or gets to a bowl game this year or becomes eligible for one, that that recruiting class is probably going to take off. We might see guys mm. come back to the recruiting class, you know, that, that have left. Um, or guys that we wouldn't have even thought we had a chance to because there is that positive momentum with the program. But again, all of this is kind of a pipe dream. I mean, I don't think there's there's any way with what we have available and what we've seen so far from Beatty that you can honestly think that he's going to be able to get those six wins. Um, but no. I do think yeah. I do think that's the number of wins it would take for him to say 100%, I have my job for next year. So I agree. I, I definitely think 100%. Because like five wins, it would be, I think, really tough to fire him. I mean – even if he goes like three and zero in non-conference, wins the two easiest home Big Twelve games, like you're still winning a road game there, and and it's like five wins would be such significant progress. It's it's a tricky one because you don't make that bowl game. To your point about the recruiting class, I think that's interesting because right now, for all intents and purposes, the the kids I talk to, I mean, uh, I think a lot of them are are still listening to the key message, and I think a lot of that is because what they've done with their assistant coaches. I, I mean, the names right. I hear of of the guys who really resonate with them are Garrett Riley, who's 28 years old, uh, Cassius Sendish, who obviously was a player at KU, uh, Justin Johnson, who's a younger wide receivers coach, a very, you know, energetic guy. Tony Hole, obviously, in Louisiana. Is obviously, amazing. Tony um, Hall, yeah. But, but those are the guys whose names I constantly hear about, you know, Justin Johnson, especially in that St. Louis area. Uh, you know, getting a four-star wide receiver in, in Cam Coleman to want to take an official visit to Kansas, I mean, for, again, Cam Coleman is probably not coming to Kansas, but the fact that that, that kid would even look, you know, and right. say, hey, I, I kind of want to check this out. So to your point on that, I think if KU could put out a winning team or, or even a team that won five games and then go back to these kids and say, see what we're building right now? I mean, you, you add Corion Harris and Puka Williams, you jump up four wins. You know, if we add you, what is, you know, do you jump up, you know, four more or whatever? So uh, obviously, you know, they'll – have a more coherent pitch than what I just tried to do, but uh, yeah. you, you get kind of the gist of it. So I, I think that would that would go a long way. But you know, at, at the same time, winning four games, for example, you go back to those kids, see the progress, and they're like, "You won four games, congratulations!" You know, so I, I think that's why that number has to be so high. Yeah, well, and I and I and I do think though that a lot of individual performances could go a long way to helping. Um, mm-hmm. this, this year as well, you know, I mean, if 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 uh, Puka Williams and Corian Harris both have huge years this year individually, you know, then a lot of these guys can say, oh well, you know, may, maybe the team's not doing well right now, but look, these guys are having success. It shows that you can come in and have good success individually as a player, and if we get enough of those guys in there, then the team's going to start doing something. So I mean. I think I think short of winning a bunch of games, like that's the best thing that could happen is getting these guys in there and actually having these guys succeed individually because that's really what it, like that's what you have to do to overcome issues with team success is you have to show that these guys can still come in and get the development they need, can still showcase their skills and give themselves a legitimate shot to get to the NFL. Um, if we can do that, like it won't necessarily take wins. Obviously, wins would always help, but it won't necessarily take that 
to get some of this recruiting class back, especially when you said, you know, I mean, most of the most of those relationships are made with those with those assistants. And we've got some great assistants on the staff that are doing a really good job with recruiting. We're just not able to close the deal when it finally comes down to it. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, some of the some of the bigger name players we've had that have kind of dropped off. A guy like, um, you know, Dorrance Armstrong's stats really weren't there last year. And a lot of that was, um, you know, as I've talked about multiple times, it's the fact that he was asked to shift the way he does things inside of the defense. It, it ended up helping the team more and helped with the run game, but it, it really hurt him getting that exposure that he usually gets because he wasn't in as many opportunities to get sacks. He wasn't able to get those individual, you know, those individual stats. Um, ultimately, I think that, that that ended up hurting him severely in the NFL draft. And, you know, if there's more stories like that to come out of this year, that, that's going to hurt recruiting a whole bunch. Um, especially in the, in the next few years. So seeing guys making a name for themselves, seeing guys being successful um, individually on this, on this team, even if the team itself doesn't have that success, is going to go a long way to proving to guys that they can still do something and can still showcase themselves and can still get their name out there. That's, that's going to be huge. So, all right, so I'm going to jump in. We're actually running a little bit sh- uh, longer than I thought we were on, on, on some of these, so I'm going to skip one of, the, one of these questions that I had. Um, I want to go ahead and jump in, though. Um, who on the roster do you think is going to be a breakout star this year? Um, either a guy that you know has had that potential we kind of talked about and is going to just finally live up to it, um, you know, I'm even thinking a guy like I'm, I'm not thinking of guys like Steven Sims because he's been putting up numbers even, you know, even with the poor quarterback play. Obviously, if we get that in place, he could he could really take off. But, um, you know, is is there a guy maybe who is not really thought of, not really known very well by the by the normal fan base that's going to have a really big year or even a guy that we've all seen the potential for but hasn't been able to do it and is just going to break out? Well, offensively, the two I thought of when you were saying that, I think Evan Sayers is maybe a guy that, that most KU casual fans wouldn't know about. He's a bigger wide receiver type. Uh, and, and I, I mean, this guy, he, he loves to trash talk. He's physical. He's just he's huge. He'll go up and get the ball. Um, I, I think the thing with the KU wide receivers is after Steven Sims, it's basically been no one in terms of, like, the production drop-off has been so steep. LaCoviante Gonzalez, like, a few years ago, was the closest you were getting to – to kind of a true number two. So, and to be I honest, most of his production came on the special teams. So, <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. And, and so, like, uh, Dalen Charlotte, you know, said he was injured last year, and I, I believe he was, but also when I talked to the coaching staff, I get the sense it was more uh, maybe the mental side of the game that, that kind of kept him from, you know, learning a new offense and a new system and building that familiarity. Seems like that may have actually played a, you know, a pretty significant role too. So, you know, maybe he'd be that type of candidate. But Khalil Herbert, I mean, I mean, this is a guy who, aside from one game, his numbers have never been that exceptional. He's had some good rushing performances, like again outside of the 291 yard game. But if you look at his like season stats, he in his first two years hasn't done all that much, mostly because of injury and and you know, kind of getting slowed down by a hamstring last year, right after having the breakout game of his career. Because of the depth of the KU running backs, the loss of Kazee, the loss of Kazili Flomo, uh, I think that sucks for them. I think it hurts them a lot. He was this power back who everyone was saying basically sucked to tackle. Uh, I think without him, the KU running backs, not that they'll be stretched thin, that they're missing a power back now that they will have to make up somewhere. Uh, at the same time, I think the depth is better between Dom Williams, Deron Thompson, Cooper Williams is, is kind of a tinier guy, but I think he'll get a few carries per game. And, and I think that should help. 
keep Khalil Herbert healthy, and it wouldn't shock me if he had a really big year. Yeah, you actually uh, stole one of the topics I was going to ask you about in here in just a minute about the uh, the loss of Flomo from the uh, running back stable. So, so let's actually go ahead and jump into that really, really quick. Um, you know, you you had put an article out there on on Fog.net talking about that. Um, you know, his loss and kind of how how some of the players responded to that and, and how they think that the uh, that the stable of running backs is going to be. I mean, what are your what are your real thoughts on that? I mean, I mean, obviously, you know, they don't really have another big power back kind of guy. But given what we've seen and kind of the the I guess mold that we have of of good KU running backs in the past, is that really necessary, or do we have a guy that can kind of fit the mold of what we've had previously um, that that can keep up that production? Yeah, I think it was necessary for this team, and I think it's because they were so bad the last two years in uh, short yardage rushing situations. And, and even when you remove all the self-inflicted things, the false starts, the delay of games, the you know situations that you're, you're hurting yourself. I mean, this was a team that was unable to rush in third and short, second and short. Like they were never able to pick those up, and in part because you know it's hard when you're in the air raid. You don't want to all of a sudden say, okay, now go under center. You know, go under center. We're going to do a single back or something like. You don't do that. So now, now all of a sudden it's a little bit trickier. You're running like a draw out of the shotgun against a nine-man front, and then you're just getting stopped at the line of scrimmage. So uh, I think in that regard, I think Fulmo would have helped a ton. Dom uh, Williams is like the clear second back behind Herbert, but I don't think you want to use him in that role, like if you're KU football, because I think he could be dynamic, and I think if Herbert were to get injured, he could step into Herbert's role pretty seamlessly. So maybe it becomes Deron Thompson, or, or maybe you look somewhere else, you throw one of the fullbacks in the, into that role, but but I don't know. I, I think the most likely scenario is can you just offer these kind of business as usual in their short yardage situations, and I don't think that's the worst thing in the world. I think a lot of the times your number one running back, your number two running back can handle a short yardage situation, uh, but at the same time, I actually do think it's a really big loss. Uh, I, I get why the players would say it's not, and I get why they would feel that way, uh, especially since they are the ones playing, but I do think it's a significant loss for KU. Yeah, I, th- I think I tend to agree with you, but um, hopefully, you know, I mean, Khalil Herbert definitely had the big game last year against West Virginia, and if he can stay healthy, um, you know, I, I see him, I see a lot in him from what I was watching last year um, that we had in guys like uh, like Sims and, and other guys like that where, it, you know, just the the ability to make the cuts needed regardless of how well the offensive line is playing. Um, I, I just think that he has a big opportunity, but a lot of that's just going to depend on, on the offensive line um, and really how much of an opportunity he gets given how many running backs that they have. So, all right, so let's jump in. Um, we're going to go ahead and get wrapped up here really soon, but I did this with uh, Jesse. We're going to do this with everybody that's on the podcast prior to the season starting. We have a little bit of over-under. Like I told you last year, we had like 40 different categories. I, I trimmed it down a lot this year, one, because there's not nearly as much to get excited about, um, <laughs> but also, but also two, just because I think these are ones that are either the most interesting um, or honestly are just the funniest to think about. So um, I'll run through these five real quick. I'll go ahead and get your answers, and then I got just a couple other questions, including a couple Twitter questions that I wanted to, to, to finish up with. So first mm-hmm. f- first one for the over-under, the number of QBs to start a game for Kansas this year, and I set the line for that at two and a half. Oof, that's a perfect line. Yeah, exactly. I was, ho- I was hoping it'd be one and a half or even two, and I'd just take the over and not lose any sleep over it. Um Two and a half. I will say the 
Oh, boy, that is a great one. I, I'm going to say under because I think it'll be two, but I think it is way more likely that it is three than one. I, I would say infinitely more likely that it is three than one. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with that last statement. I'll, I'm going to wait to make my, my predictions on this for our last episode before the season starts. But, yeah, um, I, I'm kind of thinking along the, the same lines that it's definitely not likely um, that there's only one. Because that means, one, that they actually have to identify somebody and be extremely confident going into the season. Um, you know, And I just don't see that happening given the, the QB race that we've had at this point. So, All right, second, second one. Steven Sims touchdown receptions. I set that line at nine and a half. Oof, that's another good one. Uh, if he stays healthy, you know what, I'll take you over on that. I think if he stays healthy, he's going to be in for a gigantic year. Receptions, yards, touchdown, and he's aware of the records he's chasing. Uh, it's going to be over on that, but I, I think he's in for a huge year either way. Sounds good. All right. Khalil Herbert, 200-plus yard games. I set that line at two and a half. 200-plus yards games in terms of rushing or from scrimmage? Rushing. Rushing. Well, I was thinking rushing, but, you know, I mean, yeah, we'll keep it at rushing. So. Uh, I, I will take the under on that all the way down to I would take the under on half a game. Oh, really? Okay. All right. Well, I, I guess that means we have different levels of confidence in his ability to kind of have a big game like he did against West Virginia. 200 but yards, right. though, man. That's a lot of yards. Well, I, I know it is, but there's also some really bad uh, rushing defenses. So, um, especially if he gets going early in, in some of those non-conference games. So, All right. Times that Kansas is losing by less than 10 points at the half. And I set that line at four and a half games. Ooh, that's a very good line. I will take the over on that. Um, if you gave me KU plus 10 on the season to halftime, yeah, I, I would say I, I would take the over on four and a half. I think it'll be five. That was the number I was thinking when you said it, but that's a really good line because there's a good chance it's significantly lower than that. Yeah, there really is. Okay, and then the last one, and a lot of this comes out of that, that TCU game that we were talking about from last year. Um, the number of times that David Beatty decides to punt on fourth and one when he obviously Oof. should be going for it. <laughs> I set that line at 11 and a half. Uh, well, every time actually on fourth and one is a bad time to punt. Uh, well, yes, agreed, season, agreed. So. But <laughs> uh, 11 and a half, that, you know, I, so obviously I wrote the article last year that was when I asked Beatty about punting fourth and three in the 39, not that I remember this game at all. Uh, but fourth and three on the 39, uh, closer to the opposing team's end zone, KU punted. And I asked him, I was like, why did you punt there? And he said it was an analytical decision. And I followed up and I said, the analytics said to punt on fourth and three from the 39. I, I remember that it, article well. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it's possible they did. I'm certainly not saying he lied about it twice to me, but that's shocking to me. If their analytics said, especially when Doug Meacham in the preseason was before the season saying, you know, their analytics chart is more aggressive than most analytic charts. Most analytic charts, like across the board, would tell you to go for it in that situation. And, I mean, that K had gone for it in those situations all throughout the year. And so, I mean, it's also possible Beatty was, was maybe remembering a different sequence or whatever, but, but he said their analytics told them to punt there. And so, I mean, if the analytics are telling you to punt there, they're going to tell you to punt all the time. Uh, I will say... Bad punts, fourth and one bad punts under because that's such a high number. But yeah, I and I really probably should have said yeah. fourth and short, but fourth and one yeah. sounded funnier when I was writing it up. So, but, but, but still, fourth and short, like yeah, that's honestly I think that's one of the biggest K 
uncontrollable mistakes the staff has made over the last three years is not being nearly aggressive enough on fourth down. Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, I'm really hoping that I set that line way too high, but I also, given what we've seen the last three years, I'm not, I would not be surprised if they did that, you know, 15 to 20 times in the season where either they, you know, if you want any shot to win the game, you have to go for it, even if you're not super likely to make it, or, you know, as what happened against TCU a couple a couple years ago, you know, there was three different times where they were within a field goal and had a fourth and short on the TCU side of the field, and they went ahead and punted it. And it just absolutely drove me crazy. I was actually working up at uh, in the concession stand for my kids' football league, and I started screaming when I listened to that on the radio, and everybody thought I was absolutely insane until I explained what happened. And all these people down in the middle of Florida – you know, who have absolutely no interest in the Jayhawks were wondering why the coach decided to go ahead and do that. Like, they were all like, wow, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And it happened three times in that game. So I would not be surprised if that was upwards of the 20, you know, 20 times, just given his, his history. But I will be very happy if it's, if it's in the single digits. So, all right. So, so that's it for the over-under. Um, just really, really quick, I wanted to go ahead and jump into our Twitter questions. Um Give me just a second here. I'm not going to ask that one from Tom just because it's not really um, – for those for those that really want to know what I'm talking about, you can go ahead and jump out on Twitter where I ask for questions here, and you can see um, Tom. Tom's a little bitter about movie takes, and I don't really want to get into that right now. So instead, let's go ahead and jump to um, – here we go. The one from, from Jesse Newell, at, at Jesse Newell, he decided – to go ahead and return the favor for your sushi question. Um, and he asked, I'm trying to get the actual text that we had. Here we go. What is the most underrated advanced stat? Yeah. So when he said this, I'm, I'm going basketball with this because that's, that's really where my knowledge is in terms of advanced statistics. And honestly, like plain old offensive and defensive rating, which are not like that advanced statistics, but especially for, like, lineups, three-man, four-man, and five-man units, being able to explain to people that, you know, the context of Draymond Green's plus-minus is a lot better than Clay Thompson. That doesn't mean he's better than him, but it means how they use him with Stephen Curry. That makes, you know, X, Y, and Z so effective. Landon Lucas was a perfect example of this. I would have people in my mentions saying, Landon Lucas actively hurts KU's offense, and I'd say, no, he's one of these, probably the best screen setter Bill Self has ever had. He knows his spot on the floor. He seals the lane better than anyone Bill Self has ever had. He actually opens their offense up, and they would say, well, what evidence do you have for that? He only averages, you know, X amount of points per game. And I'd say, look at the offensive ratings. Look at how well the offense does when it's him, and then swap him out in those same units with, you know, whoever his backup is, and look how bad it gets. And so I think offensive and defensive rating and lineup data – far and away my favorite and, and probably most underrated advanced statistic, even though it's really not that advanced, like at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be super advanced to be underrated. So I, I, I think I would have to agree with you in terms of a, a basketball sense. Unfortunately, I'm not well-versed in the basketball advanced stats. I, I dive more into the baseball ones, but, um, but yeah, I, I would have to agree with you. That's one of the ones that I know about that is, that is definitely, I don't think, used often enough to really do any kind of serious analysis. So, All right, and then one more Twitter question. Um, this one is just completely for fun. I would not blame you if you have a hard time coming up with an answer to this. But from uh, at Fizzle406, he says, who is on the Mount Rushmore of people named Scott? Oh, this is easy. 
the thing is, none of their first names are Scott, though. But but I actually have my Mount Rushmore. It's a pretty good one. You ready? All right, go ahead. All right, the first is Dred Scott, obvious, you know, historical significance. All right. Adam Scott, because you get to double up on the Parks and Recreation uh, actor and the golfer. So that's, you know, you get two for the price of one. Okay. Uh, Stuart Scott, booyah, obvious reason. And uh, finally, F. Scott Fitzgerald, because uh, I believe uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote a pretty famous book or so that was turned into a pretty famous movie with a pretty famous actor. Interesting. That's actually a really good list. I saw I saw some other suggestions floating out there, including some people like Scotty Pippen, um, Ridley Scott. There's a few other ones, but uh, but yeah, I would have to say that you had a very solid list there, especially on such a short notice. You know, not really being able to think about it for too long. So, all right. And then the final question I just wanted to ask you, um, partly because of some of the interactions that we've had, um, you know, and and mainly because I've seen a lot of really great articles out on Fog.net recently. But what has been your favorite story to write since you started over at Fog.net? Uh, that is a really good question. It, it was too recently. One, the one I wrote with Miles Kendrick, where he talked about black quarterback stereotypes and why he feels he doesn't fit into them, was was fascinating. Peyton Bender opening up, uh, obviously, about, you know, losing his friend and, and former roommate uh, uh, was, you know, a really powerful message that, that he talked about. But the one I'd give, actually, uh, Chase Todd, who was this uh, recruit who I believe just committed elsewhere. He might have gone to Indiana or Houston, one of those schools. He, he just recently committed. And, and when I talked to him, he mentioned that uh, his motive – I asked him what his motivation is. And his answer was, I'm really glad you asked me that question. And, and he said – that his mom was currently working at the Golden State Warriors Houston Rockets game because she had to take a second job. And, and I talked with both him and her, and, and they talked about how uh, she had kind of moved away from her job and, and she had tried to hide, I guess, their financial situation from him. And, and, you know, eventually he figured it out and he was like, I, I really want to take care of my mom. So just hearing stories about the two of them, she would go to his football practices and, like, say his name in a sing-songy voice just to turn him into the Hulk, basically, and get him so mad that he would dominate in football. And now he's obviously a talented offensive line recruit uh, going to a good school and, and uh, you know, has NFL aspirations. It was a really nice story I, I just to get to hear from both of them. So I, I think to this point at Fog.net, that has been uh, my favorite story that I've gotten to do so far. But but I appreciate you saying that, too, because – you know, certainly I've, I've tried my best to, to do some interesting ones for you guys, so I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I thought you were going to answer with the Peyton Bender one. Um, and actually, the, the, the Miles Kendrick one I, I thought would be a good contender for that as well. So I was really surprised, though, to, to hear which one it was that you actually talked the most about. So I, I will make sure, though, that, that we link all three of those in the in the show notes. Um, I will have to, to uh, chase down that Todd one because I – Honestly, I, I I must have missed that one. So, but um, yeah, I would definitely encourage everybody that's 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 listening to go ahead and check those out. Make sure you guys check out all the coverage over on Fog.net. It's always great. I, you know, I, I can't. I don't. It seems like I say this all the time, and yet I can't say it enough. It's always great to have a lot of different voices talking about the Kansas Jayhawks, giving us lots of things to read, lots of things to listen to, lots of things to cover. Um, you know, also, uh, you know, I've, I've been listening to you to you guys uh, doing you and uh, Swain. I, I, was, I always forget his first name because it always comes up as M. Swain. But doing the uh, Fog.net podcast there, um, you know, I, 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 I think I've got like seven or eight now different KU podcasts to listen to. It was, it was great to hear your guys come out as well, though. So I'm definitely looking forward to uh, big things from you guys there. So um, 
once again, Scott, thanks thanks for joining me for, for previewing all of the, the Kansas football, and we even found a way to sneak in a little bit of basketball as well, which seems to always be the case when you're talking about Kansas. So um, thanks, thanks, thanks again for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right. Have a good one. All right. I'll see you. Sports Social Podcast Network.